Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast, based on the paper, British Society of Gastroenterology, Best Practice Guidance, Outpatient Management of Cirrhosis, Part 1, Compensated Cirrhosis, published in July 2023. This is the first podcast in a three-part series of podcasts for Frontline Gastroenterology, to accompany the three papers in this liver series so I hope you really enjoy listening to all three parts of this. My name is Dr Philip Smith, Digital Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Social Media Associate Editor and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool United Kingdom. My co-interviewer is Dr Gio Shabani. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you for the first part of this exciting podcast series on the outpatient management of cirrhosis. My name is Dr. Gio Shebani, a frontline gastroenterology training editor and gastroenterology registrar in the Royal United Hospital Bath in the United Kingdom. Thank you, Gio. And we both really like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Dina Mansour, consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist at Gateshead Health NHS Foundation Trust and Professor Diraj Dripathi, Consultant Hepatologist and Clinical Director of Research at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust, who are both co-authors on this paper. Dr Mansoud, Professor Dripathi, thank you so much again for joining us to do this podcast today to discuss this very important guideline for trainees and gastroenterologists and hepatologists alike. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. To kick off, we understand that this guideline was commissioned by the British Society of Gastroenterology and endorsed by the British Association for the Study of Liver and the British Liver Nurses Association. Can you describe the process that led to the writing of this guideline and why it is so important for gastroenterologists to know about? Thanks, Phil. So liver disease and liver cancer combined cause about 2.5% of deaths in the UK, in England, um, sorry, in 2018. And over half of those are in people of working age. And the number of hospital admissions for liver disease has increased by over half in the last decade. And there's huge variations regionally and between different types of hospital in um, management of um, patients with cirrhosis and that's been identified both through the gastroenterology getting it right first time program report and through various national audits and so the main primary aim of these guidelines was to address variations in care in order to try and improve outcomes. We also wanted to update certain aspects of guidelines as we're lucky in the UK to be performing quite a lot of large multi-centre trials at the moment, which will give us some answers about things that we need to know to improve care for patients with cirrhosis. So what we wanted to do was to provide a practical, very accessible guideline overarching on the management of um, outpatient care for patients with cirrhosis. So we developed a multidisciplinary working group, um, including hepatologists, gastroenterologists, surgeons, anaesthetists, dietitians, pharmacists, representations from the British Liver Trust. And we came up with a series of subject areas um, agreed 
across the group through um, virtual meetings. We then um, appointed section leads uh, who were responsible for developing certain areas of the guidelines and drafting recommendations. These were then combined um, and then appraised by the whole working group until we reached consensus on those. They were then circulated to the BSG liver section, um, the portal hypertension special interest group and members of the British Liver Nurse Association for review before being peer reviewed for publication. Thank you. From your point of view, what aspects of this guidance do you consider to be most important given the limited time we often get to see these patients in clinic? Thank you very much, Gio, uh, for that very important question. So uh, the, the guidance, as, as Dina has uh, mentioned, is really there to be accessible and really kind of the go-to kind of guideline, uh, which summarises the, the key areas that uh, clinicians, I think this is aimed maybe particularly at those uh, in, in secondary care and not patient management. Uh, and there's been a lot of uh, interest in trying to ensure that management is standardised throughout the different hospitals and different uh, settings. And we already know that there is quite a lot of variation with regards to the delivery of services across England uh, and how patients are managed um, uh, with regards to uh, emergency admissions and also the uptake of, for example, surveillance programmes. So I think really that a key uh, uh, area of the guideline is really the, the bundle, the cirrhosis bundle, and this has been uh, advocated uh, by the specialist societies. Uh, and the, the bundle covers the main uh, aspects of, uh, of, the, of the guideline. It really summarizes the, uh, what we've uh, said in, in the guidance. Uh, and uh, it, it, there, are, there are eight, well, nine areas, uh, including the diagnosis, the observations, the, the alcohol, uh, up the use, uh, HCC surveillance, portal hypertension, fracture risk, uh, decompensation features, vaccination, and also patient information. So, I think if you were to, if you had, if you're short of time, as you know, I'm sure all, all our colleagues are uh, in, in, in the busy uh, uh, working environment that we all uh, that we're all in at the moment. Uh, this is probably the go-to document in the guideline uh, if you just if you just had limited time to to quickly assess a patient and this is unlike the previous you know other guidelines uh, or bundles this is really aimed at the outpatient we already know about the national guidance aimed at the inpatients and patients coming in and and assessment within the first few hours of a patient coming in but this is aimed really specifically for the outpatient setting Thank you, Prof. I think uh, almost certainly it's going to be the, the go-to outpatient guideline in the UK. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, had a huge impact on how we conduct uh, consultations, leading to a degree of um, creativity to a certain extent in using non-face-to-face -face means. Are, are there any aspects of implementation of this guidance that you see as straightforward and others that might be more... Uh, challenging? Well, we've really made um, an attempt to make this guidance as accessible and inclusive and kind of adaptable as possible to um, individual trusts' ways of working. For example, with the um, surveillance for varices, some places are struggling more with their endoscopy workload. And for those, having the Bovino criteria is really useful in identifying those patients who may not need 
screening endoscopies. On the other hand, there are some trusts and centres who don't have easy access to transient elastography yet and are still setting up that service. And for them, it may be more practical to continue with endoscopic surveillance. Also, we've really tried to simplify the osteoporosis guidelines, for example, so that rather than doing um, bone mineral density scans on all patients uh, at risk, you can use the FRAC score, which is something you can easily do in outpatients to assess someone's likely risk of having a fracture and therefore identify the people who need to go on to have DEXA scans. We've used the bundle to try and make it as easy as possible to incorporate all the aspects of the guidelines. I think in terms of what might be more challenging, I think it can be challenging to use telephone clinics, for example, if you want to assess patients' nutrition, um, if you want to really delve into patients' alcohol use disorders and try and address those concerns. And so we've advocated kind of swapping between using using telephone clinics alongside face-to-face clinics, um, maybe video uh, consultations to try and give people ideas on how they can flexibly adjust their services to try and give as high a standard of care as possible within the constraints of budgets and time and resources. You just mentioned the Bivino criteria, which leads me nicely on to my next question. Could you describe to our listeners who are perhaps less familiar with this and how it can be used in the outpatient setting? So the, the Bivino criteria, uh, I'm sure many of the listeners will be aware of. Um, now, we're really talking about uh, these are international consensus. This is an international consensus document, the Bavino uh, consensus. They publish every five years. And uh, in fact, the last iteration was last year, and I was part of the Bavino uh, 7 group. Now, we're t- talking here about Bavino 6 criteria. So before we even uh, discuss the nitty-gritty of the, of the criteria, it's important for the listeners to understand the concept of compensated and decompensated cirrhosis. And the compensated cirrhosis, which this particular part focuses on, is really patients who have no features of decompensation. They, they may have or may, they may not have varices. And the decompensated patients are those that obviously have the features of uh, decompensation, bleeding, uh, ascites, encephalopathy, and some would also say jaundice. And the Bavino stages of cirrhosis, there are six stages, and we're really focusing on the first three stages. And this can be further defined uh, by uh, hepatic venous pressure gradient, which is um, a measure of the portal pressure, uh, and hepatic venous, venous pressure gradient of less than or equal to 10 uh, is, uh, is everybody accepts as being clinically significant portal hypertension. This is when viruses develop, uh, and this is when patients are at highest risk of liver-related events. Now, Bavino 6 is focusing particularly on the patients that have, um, we're trying to, to minimize uh, or make most efficient use of the precious resource, which is endoscopy. And this has particularly come to light uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so patients who have compensated, and this is really important, these are patients who have compensated cirrhosis and where there is the uh, facility and easy access to fibre scanning to measure the liver stiffness. So uh, if a patient has a liver stiffness measurement of uh, uh, over 20 kilopascals or platelet count of less than 150, then you've met the Bovino criteria. And so if you, if you have that, then you're likely to have viruses, so you should proceed 
uh, with endoscopy. However, and this is important, you need both a higher platelet count, which is over 150, and also a low liver stiffness measurement of less than 20. Uh, that means that you don't really need an endoscopy, so you should be followed up on annual uh, elastography if there's active liver disease. This is the other important aspect of Bovino is that uh, in the presence of active liver disease, then uh, clearly follow-up is, is, is necessary. And by active, we mean ongoing alcohol consumption, uh, uh, failure to get a sustained biological response with drug therapy, and also ongoing fatty liver disease. So it's really, if you have access to fibrous scanning, then you can use the Bovino criteria and that can re result in almost 20-25% reduction in the endoscopy burden. But it is important to follow the patients up. However, if you don't have access to scan, you can't unfortunately use the Bovino criteria. And we would still advise that patients undergo uh, an endoscopy in, in that case. You mentioned earlier that the care for these patients is quite variable nationally. And obviously this guidance will be really helpful going forward. I just wondered, in the real world and practically, what aspects do you think we could be better at as clinicians? I think there's lots of things that we can all improve on. And these guidance documents are really aimed at getting the basics right, because that, I think, is what's going to make the biggest difference to a patient's outcome. So first of all, I think we're not that great at giving patients all the information they need at the outset in a way that they understand. So... For example, we've suggested that you can use tailored videos for patients who have difficulty with their reading skills um, or taking in information. Um, they need to know how to um, perform self-care. They need to know what to look out for in terms of potential decompensation. And they need really good support with maintaining abstinence from alcohol. And I think that is one of the things that we're not so good at. We're also not great at HCC surveillance. Now, only one in five patients are diagnosed with HCC early enough to have treatment at the moment. And a UK survey found that the provision of surveillance was really poor overall um, and hospitals didn't have the mechanisms to make abnormal results known to referring clinicians. There was inconsistency in the frequency of surveillance. Another area where we're not so good on is nutrition, and it's really, really important in cirrhosis. And that is where aspects of multidisciplinary care could be much better. Coordination with physiotherapists, um, dietitians, and in places where we don't have access to specialist dietitians, specialist physiotherapists, specialist pharmacists, it's really beholden on us to get the knowledge and the understanding of the importance of nutrition and what to tell the patients to do in terms of their nutrition, because it's really a key aspect of, of managing cirrhosis, even in compensated cirrhosis. Also things like vaccinations, we're not so great at re reminding patients about vaccinations, and that can have a huge impact on mortality. So patients with cirrhosis have a relative risk of 40 eight compared to someone who doesn't have cirrhosis. That's the highest risk group of anyone, even higher than patients on immunosuppressants from dying from flu. Um, and so it's really important that we remind patients about having their routine vaccinations done. So they're areas that are very basic, very simple in some ways, but it's really hard to get them all in to a single consultation. And that's why I think the aid memoir of the bundle is really, really useful. 
There's a mention in the guidance about managing frequent non-attenders. And I wondered if you had any tips or examples of good practice that means we can engage this group better. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, uh, particularly come to light uh, following in the recovery of, of the pandemic and really getting patients to engage again with the services. Now, something that's really close to me is is the concept of the one-stop clinic, which we have touched on in the guidance. And this is really uh, particularly, I suppose, uh, can apply to the rare disease cohort, but it can apply really to, to almost all patients because, you know, as we mentioned, patients require, uh, most patients require the surveillance, SEC surveillance, uh, and you know they require face-to-face visits for assessment of their nutritional status, uh, alcohol consumption, and so on. So one-stop clinic where a patient comes, sees maybe not even not necessarily just one uh, healthcare professional, but maybe a multidisciplinary team. A NAFL clinic is a particularly good one. They may see a, a hepatologist, a dietitian, and also a diabetic specialist, and also have an ultrasound scan as part of their HCC uh, HCC surveillance. So that's a one-stop clinic, particularly. Uh, for patients uh, who come a long way. And we know that in, in obviously the tertiary centres, there may be uh, patients coming quite a long way. In Birmingham, for example, we cover pretty much most of Wales and they do re- certainly come a long way. It's also important that uh, patients are empowered. Uh, so allowing patients to access their um, healthcare records, something that uh, we've been doing for a while and I'm sure many other uh, units have also uh, and also, it's important that uh, patients, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the letters that go out are addressed to patients. So this is something that we're probably a bit late to come in in, in Birmingham, but something that we're now definitely going ahead and doing for all all um, disciplines. Letters directed towards patients in in a in a clear language so that they can understand. Because if if it's all mumbo jumbo, they may just completely lose interest and disengage. And the other thing that is also important is patient-directed visits. So patients actually, you know, they, again, it's about empowering the patient. You know, they, they can uh, make an appointment at any time and uh, d- even decide on face-to-face or whether it's going to be a virtual clinic. I think we have to accept that virtual clinics will continue to have a role uh, and certainly not ideal for all patients. But, you know, for example, alternating virtual clinics uh, with face-to-face clinics, or at least if a patient can't come for a face-to-face, giving them that option uh, and I've had a number of patients that have contacted me uh, for, for clinics for the last couple of months. Uh, they haven't been able to come, for example, because of train strikes and so on. So actually, at least giving them that option of the teleclinics is, I think, really uh, important. Thank you. All of those ideas and innovations sound really sensible and really good um, in different ways. So your guidance is is excellent, and I don't think anybody would say any different about that. But do you foresee any barriers to the implementation of this guidance at the front line? I mean, like I've alluded to, I think we've tried to make it as easy to follow and as adaptable as possible with various options for centres to follow them. I think there are always going to be barriers and they there's always themes to the barriers. They are resources. So, for example, Diraj in Birmingham may be able to have a multidisciplinary clinic with dietitians and physios and pharmacists, but that may not be an option in a small DGH. I think one of the things is, though, that you can get around those things because actually having those people 
means that you don't need a doctor to see the patients every time. And so you can actually use your resource more cannily if you encourage collaborative working with your multidisciplinary team and split clinics, you know, so that patients are sometimes seeing dietitians with an interest in liver disease, sometimes seeing um, specialist nurses. And that can be a way of allowing more time for these patients, because I think the time in clinic is a big barrier to good care. If you, it, it, I think it's traditionally been seen that seeing stable patients with cirrhosis, compensated cirrhosis, is a quick quick win in clinic, you know, because there's not much to do. But actually, when you look at the bundle and, and, and the guidance, there's a lot of things that you need to cover. And it's really important that you maintain people in that compensated state, because if they um, become decompensated, either because they haven't had the proper surveillance, because they develop HCC that too that is diagnosed too late, if they are continuing to drink, then what happens is they tip into decompensated cirrhosis, which is much more resource intensive and obviously much, much worse in terms of patient outcomes. So I think really focusing on good quality outpatient care for patients in the compensated state is really, really important to overall improving outcomes in patients with liver disease. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mansour and Professor Tripathi for your fantastic overview um, and for taking the time to join us for this podcast. Many congratulations again to you and to your co-authors for your extended guidance on the outpatient management of cirrhosis being published in Frontline Gastroenterology and we definitely look forward to hearing more in part two. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say thank you to my co-interviewer, Dr. Gio Shabani. Thank you for your constant enthusiasm and for organising this. You've done a fantastic job. To our listeners, if you'd like to read uh, part one, part two and part three of these guidance papers, then uh, the link is underneath this podcast. And please do, of course, join us again in the future for further Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. Thank you very much for listening.